All right, so here's where we're at. Whether it's the Bible that's on your app or the Bible that is in your lap, go ahead and meet me in the middle of that Bible in the book of Psalms. We're gonna be here for the next four weeks. We're gonna be in Psalm chapter 19 today. And uh, you probably noticed we're starting a new series. Great day to be at church. We're starting a new series. And here's what I'm gonna guess. You're starting a new season. Maybe you're home from vacation. Maybe school is starting back. Maybe work's starting to pick up, or you might even be you know, figuring out what are some new rhythms for retirement. Whatever your age, whatever your stage, a lot is happening at this time of year. And here's the temptation, we just want to go ahead and name it, is for your load, everything that you take on, to surpass your limits, what you're capable of taking on. I'll tell you a story that illustrates this uh, really vividly. Uh, there was uh, this uh, traveler who landed... Uh, in Africa, and he, he was intent on this uh, very rapid journey into the jungle. And so whenever this traveler arrived in Africa, he hired some porters to carry his luggage, to carry his stuff, and to help him journey into the jungle together. And so they go about a day's journey in, and they've hit some bad weather. It's just been a really bad go so far. Uh, they go through the night. They don't really get any sleep. And this, this traveler who hired these porters goes to them and basically says, all right, guys, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving and they won't budge. He starts pleading. He starts like bribing. He starts persuading, and they're not moving. Come to find out, he starts asking around, like, what's this about? And it comes out that those, those porters, they're slowing down. Here's what they're doing. They're waiting for their souls to catch up to their bodies. And this journey into the jungle that these porters experienced, uh, what it did to them is what our current frantic pace in life and in our modern moment is doing to all of us. It's wearing us out. But here's the difference between us and those porters is they knew they needed to slow down, but we don't. Why, why is it? Have you, have you wondered why it is that we run at such a frantic pace? Why do we refuse to sit still? Why can we just not slow down? And I just want to give you three reasons really quick. Let's interact with this. Number one, it's countercultural to slow down. You know, we live in a moment where everything is on demand, everything is high speed, everything is instant access. We have Amazon Prime and we can order whatever it is that we basically want. It can get to our doorstep within a day. We don't even have to leave our house. But in our culture, slow is a negative term. So if you deal with someone who has a low IQ, what do you call them? You call them, that person is slow. Bad service at a restaurant. Man, that was, it was, it was slow. Or a boring movie. That movie was slow. You even go to the dictionary and you're going to see one of the definitions of slow is mentally dull, <laughs> stupid, lacking in readiness, promptness, or willingness. So we can't slow down because it's countercultural. Uh, next, we can't slow down because it's counterintuitive. For example, at the checkout, I would, I would wager that you're probably going to the line with the fewest people in it. You're, you're trying to get that fast pass, you're trying to get through as quickly as you can. Uh, or maybe when you're driving, this is where all road rage starts, is you get behind like some slow person who doesn't realize you're a really big deal and you have some really, somewhere really important that you need to get. So what do you do? Uh, you do some things that you probably need to repent of and then you get in the fast lane and you keep moving. Or maybe it's like you're just trying to watch a video on YouTube or on social media and that thing doesn't load at, at like lightning speed. What happens? You just keep scrolling to something that will. It's counterintuitive. It's also, it's counterproductive. Did you know 
that Americans are working more hours per day, more days per week, and more weeks per year than any time in our country's history. Now, what's work doing? It's following us home. We've got these devices. We've got these tablets. We've got these laptops. And it's like the specter of checking my email or making sure I didn't miss something. It's constantly haunting me. And so what's, that, what's the answer? Like when you ask someone, hey, how's it going? Well, this is the customary response, right? I'm good, but I'm, it's that B word, busy. I'm, I'm really busy. It's like the part-time barista is busy. It's like the CEO is busy. The young parent is busy. The college student is busy. We're, it's like we're all busy. But beneath the busy is this nagging sense. It's like, really what we're trying to do is we're trying to be like God. We're trying to be all places to all people at all points. And here's the lie that is lurking beneath the surface of all of our busy. If I don't do it, it won't get done. Ever been there? Or maybe it's this. If I don't do it, you know, for all the ones on the Enneagram in here, or like your type A, if I don't do it, it's not going to get done right. Is that anybody? I mean, we just feel this nagging sense that if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. But this is why uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, the Holocaust survivor, uh, once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Those are wise words. Because what do both sin and busyness have in common? Well, uh, they, they both uh, are basically going to have the same effect. It's going to totally eliminate our space for God. It's going to totally eliminate our ability to love others well. It's going to eliminate our ability to care for our own soul. So here's the question. Here's the million dollar question. I just want to, I'll be that guy. I'll ask it. Is all the busy making us any better? Like, what is it? What is, is what we're doing actually working? That's a good question. Is what you're doing working? Is what I'm doing working? Well, let's, let's just take a quick survey and be brutally honest right here. Distraction rates are at a record high. Our attention span is dropping each passing year. Before the digital revolution in 2000, the average human attention span was, get this, it was 12 seconds. It's like, you got 12 seconds to, to, to keep me listening. Since then, it has dropped to eight seconds. Did you know that the average goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds? That's right, people. We are losing to goldfish. Distraction rates are up. We should feel pretty something about ourselves. Depression rates are up. Did you know that when the pandemic hit, depression rates almost like tripled within months? And, and you know, all these economists and all these psychologists are saying, oh, we're going we're gonna to get back to normal. We're going to recover, we're, like mentally and emotionally. And here's what's happened. We haven't done it. Actually, the, the depression rates have continued to increase. You look to your right, you look to your left, people on both sides, then there's you. One of you is depressed. One in every three Americans are depressed. You compound this with anxiety rates are up, addiction rates are up, and what do we know? We know that being busy is not making us better. Here's what we are. We are up on all the things that we should be down on, and we're down on all the things that we should be up on. <laughs> and in a world that's, that's hurried, that's discouraged, that's anxious, where do we turn? Well, here's what you should know, um, if you're new, is that around Coastway, when we need a word from God, we turn to the word of God. And so for the next four weeks, the invitation is, is very simple, and it's going to be the same. It's to be still. 
And understand, it's be, not do. This is an invitation to embrace your identity, not to uh, muster up a bunch of activity. You've heard that phrase, you need to slow down to speed up. That's, that's what the idea is here these next couple of weeks. And so to help with this, we're going to spend four weeks in the book of Psalms. Let's take a little bit uh, longer introduction today because I kind of want to put some concrete and rebar around what we're going to be doing. And so let me tell you a little bit about Psalms, and then we're going to jump into Psalm 19. Um, what is Psalms? Well, this will, this will date me a little bit, but uh, have you ever had a greatest hits album or CD? Anybody remember CDs? This, yeah, okay. That, I, think, I think they still exist. But um, I, I grew up on uh, these greatest hits albums called Now That's What I Call Music. Anybody? No? Okay, so now that's what I call music. I started when it was now four. I think they're up to like 100 now, so I'm not getting any younger over here. And, uh, but here's what uh, Psalms is. Psalms is God's greatest hits. It's, it's, it's the, the songs of Jesus. It's a collection of poetic songs and prayers. And you know how you get a song stuck in your head. Uh, uh, Victoria and Eleanor, uh, we were just doing some housing projects uh, just around the house yesterday, and we threw on the golden age of country music playlist. Does anybody know what it is? The 90s. That's right. The 90s when country music was really, really good still. And so uh, next thing I know, Dixie Chicks, Wide Open Spaces is coming on over here. I'm like, out of left field, man. And so like, I, it's just been there the whole time. But this is what I, this is, I don't like, how did that happen? Is, but songs, they stick with you, don't they? They get stuck in your head. That's the effect the Psalms have had on the church throughout centuries. Songs stick in our minds and here's what they do. They put words to our experiences. Why is it that you would probably rather hear a song than you would hear somebody just get up and talk? It's because songs connect to the full scope of human experiences. And that's what the Psalms do. They don't just speak to us, they speak for us. It's why Jesus quoted Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. It's why Tim Keller called the Psalms a medicine chest for the heart and the best possible guide for practical living. And so nearly half the Psalms are written by this guy named King David. And here's what you need to know about David. David was a realist. He, he did. He understood how the world worked. And here's what he saw when he looked out at the world. He saw a lot of hurt, but he saw a lot of hope. And that's what the Psalms are all about. There's basically, Psalms is an invitation to hope through hurt. And here's how we know this because there's 150 psalms, and uh, they're arranged around two basic themes, psalms of praise and psalms of lament. So a psalm of praise is pointing us toward the future hope that we have in Jesus, that he is making all things new. A psalm of lament points us toward the present hurt we experience each day that's caused by sin, and it, it acknowledges that, hey, we do live in a broken world. There is this thing called sickness. There is this thing called suffering that we all experience. There is setbacks. And so Psalm 19, what is it? It's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm of praise that celebrates God's word, and it's, you're going to get a fresh invitation every single week that you come here. And I hope it's just like opening the windows and letting a breeze blow through your life. Like, man, I needed that. And here's, here's the simple invitation today. Will you come and will you be still in God's word? That's what Psalm 19 is celebrating, is the word of God revealed to, to man. So we're going to get right to it, and I'm going to give you three reasons why your mind why your body, why your soul will thank you if you respond to this invitation. So if, you, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to jot these down as we go. Number one, God's word is 
amazing. God's word is amazing. We're going to see this detailed by King David in verses 1 through 6. So go ahead, take a look at verse 1 with me. The heavens declare. In other words, they speak up about the glory of God. And and here's the deal. I, I think that Christianity sometimes gets a bad rap because people think it's not practical. They think it's not relatable. But that just goes to show that you've never really truly experienced the Christian life because Jesus was the most practical person who ever lived. What is glory? Maybe you've heard that word. I was like, is that some abstract, like religious mumbo jumbo? Well, let me tell you what, what, what uh, the glory of God is. The glory of God is what we experience anytime his goodness or his greatness goes public for all to see. And what's the purview in verse one of God's glory? It's creation. So when you go outside and you see a beautiful sunset, that's God's glory. When you have, you know, the sand in your toes, you're on the beach. Man, I know some people don't like, like getting sand on them, but like principally, it's like, that's God's glory. That's like something he's given you to enjoy. Or, or, or maybe you go out, you feel that ocean breeze just coming, coming at you. Oh man, that just, that feels so good. Or that filet mignon that you enjoy. Man, that's awesome. I, I want more of that. Or you go somewhere like where, where we're from in the Blue Ridge Mountains, and you just see these mountainscapes that will take your breath away. Well, what is that? That is God's glory on display. And verse one continues, we see, and the sky above proclaims, that's the, the language of speaking. God's, wor- uh, God's word is speaking through the sky above about his handiwork. So honest observation, the clothes you're wearing, the stroller you push, the car you drive, it's all proclaiming and pointing to the handiwork of what? A designer a creator. And nobody with a lick of common sense would look at something that's designed for good use and say, that just happened. Like it just came out of nowhere. And when it comes to creation, when it comes to God's glory that's all around us, that's, that's, that's evident to, to us when we go out and, and we just see something beautiful, is we have two options. We can believe the absurd or we can believe in the unseen. The absurd is, hey, there's like some untraceable cause that we really can't explain very well. It's not verifiable in any way, shape, or form. Okay, that's, that's what is basically mainstream uh, taught. It's, it's taught as facts. But the, or the other option is we could believe in the absurd, which is like we just don't know. Or we could say we believe in the unseen. Is that there is an uncaused causer who exists outside of space and time and matter who stepped in to create something beautiful for us to enjoy. Keep going into verse 2. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, the rising and the setting of the sun confirm the reality. Of what? Of an all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present creator. Verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, that is the voice of God revealed to us, communicating to us by the heavens and the skies, goes out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And and here's what happens. Everyone sees it. Later on in the New Testament, Paul would say in Romans that everyone sees it and no one has an excuse to deny it. Verse four, in them, the heavens, he has set a tent for the sun, that's nighttime, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his, cha- his chamber. Uh, in other words, uh, very happy. 
Very, very happy. If you know, you know. We'll just keep moving. Verse uh, 5 goes on, and like a strong, a strong man. In other words, it's very much happening. You don't stop what's strong. Similarly, you don't stop the sun, which runs its course with joy. Verse 6, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Here's what I want you to see. In verses 1 through 6, it's really simple. King David is describing how God's word is revealed generally to all throughout creation. This is why elsewhere in the Psalms, chapter 14, verse 1, the psalmist would say, the fool is the one who says in his heart that there is no God, for it's self-evident when we just look out. But what does he do? He, he talks about the specific aspect. It's very interesting. He focuses on the sun as the life source that sustains all of creation. And why? why? It's, this is what makes God's word amazing. And that the sun is amazing because it sustains all life. And so uh, think about it this way. The sun is three things. It's central, it's essential, and it's powerful. It's central. Our solar system revolves around the sun. The sun holds everything at its proper gravitational pull. Uh, and it, it's central. It's right in the middle of it. But then it's essential. It's like, if there's no more sun, then you and I are all done. All, all of life depends on the sun for life. It's central, it's essential, and it's powerful because when pasty white people like me walk out into the sun, we get what's called sunburned. And so we have to rack up on sunscreen. You know, I've had this conversation with God a time or two. I'm like, God, you know, do you see I do not have a coastal complexion over here? And then there's a strategic pause. He looks back and he's basically like, but I have a sense of humor. So here you are. So it's like, okay, I guess I'll embrace the pace, sunscreen up, and we'll move on. It's powerful. And speaking of, where did the sun originate? Where did the sun come from? It came from the word of God. On the fourth day of creation in Genesis 1, 14 through 19, we read, and God said, let there be lights. And the sun and the moon were born. And so this is a very important principle that's embedded in the DNA of creation that I want to give to you right now from what the psalmist is saying. And it's this. From the beginning, the work of God's word was the light that brought life. The work of God's word was the light that brought life. And it's been that way ever since. When God speaks, he produces life. And that life is able to live in the light. So when you hear and respond to God's word, what does it do? It fills you with life. When you share and you show God's word, what does it do? It fills others with life. And that's the entire purpose of your life is to hear and to respond, to share and to show the word of God revealed to us. But it doesn't stop with creation and gets more specific. And that's this next idea that I want to show you. Number two, it's not just amazing. God's word is a map. It shows us where to go. I'm curious, anybody in here just like humble brag right here, you good with directions? Like you just kind of know the landscape? Anybody in here just going to need a little help getting home today? You're just like, I'm a little slow to figure out my uh, surroundings. Well, I, regardless of which you are, I think you'll appreciate this. Take a look at verse 7. The law. So the law, that's another word for God's word. It's the comprehensive term for God's will, will that is revealed in God's word. The law of the Lord. So in the, I want to point this out. In the opening verse, referring to the law, referring to the specific word of God, the, the way that the psalmist refers to God gets a lot more personal. 
You see, in verse one, it says, the heavens declares the glory of God. What is that about? Well, the word used in Hebrew for God right there is the most generic term that you could come up with, and it's El. And, and it's like this impersonal, it's not specific. But by verse seven, he is referred to by his personal covenant name, which is Yahweh. It sounds like you're kind of clearing your throat when, you say it, when you, you're saying it in, uh, in Hebrew. is Yahweh. And here's what's important about that, and why I don't mind sounding silly why I say it, is because you cannot say Yahweh without breathing in Yah and breathing out Way. And what we're seeing right here is that Yahweh is literally the bringer and the breather of life into your lungs. And so this means what, what we're seeing with the psalmist is you go from the general revelation in creation to the specific revelation through God's written down, totally truthful and trustworthy word is he gets personal. What he's saying is you can't even know God personally unless you know God's word intimately. Uh, one example of this is maybe you've heard of Helen Keller. Helen Keller, she was uh, the infamous disability rights advocate and uh, tragedy struck Keller's life at the age of 19 months. Uh, she lost her eyesight and she lost her hearing. So she was blind deaf. And uh, so, but she learned to read Braille remarkably. It's a great story of just a perseverance in the presence of God's power in a person's life. She would go on to read Braille and she uh, was given a copy of scripture in Braille. And so, she started reading that, that scripture, and here's what she concluded. She, she basically, she said, I always knew that God was there. I just never knew his name. Now I know his name is Jesus. And now I know because of his word how I'm supposed to relate to him. I relate to him as a father. I relate to him as a friend. I relate to him as my rescuer. I relate to him as my king. And so I, he's, he's essential for my every breath is what she was saying. And this was true for King David. It's, it's, it's true for Helen Keller. It's true for you and I. Take a look at verse 7 as it continues. First, we see, all, we see all these descriptors of God's word, and we see it described as perfect. In other words, it is missing nothing. And then we see it, it in its perfection, revives the soul. Reviving means a power outside of you is breathing life into you. And the whole idea is that you're dead in the water without the breath of God. And so think about God's word is like the CPR of the Christian life. It's God breathing his life. It's God breathing his light into you so that you can live and so that you can love as Jesus first loved you. Verse seven continues, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the testimony, that's another word for the word of God. It's sure. So in other words, it's certain. It's verified. You can, you can trust this. So are you ever thinking about making a purchase and you go and you like read the reviews on that product to make sure that what you're about to purchase actually works? Well, yeah, I, th I think most of us do that. Well, well, why do you do that? It's because you don't want to purchase something that does not work. It's a wise purchase if you know that it works. And that, what does a good map do? God's word is a map, remember. What does a good map do? Well, it shows you how your surroundings work so that you can get to where you need to go. And so a wise person, who is a wise person? It's someone who knows how the world actually works. It's wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is you can accumulate a bunch of things 
Uh, you can know a bunch of things, but you don't actually have any street smarts, is what we might call it. Uh, a common sense, we might call it. Wisdom is someone who knows how the world actually works. And if you want to understand the world God created, you must turn to the word that God wrote. So an unwise person, who is an unwise person? Well, it's referred to here in this verse as someone who is simple. And another way of thinking about simple is someone who is susceptible. Someone who's simple is is susceptible to lies, susceptible to, to fears that are illegitimate, susceptible to dangers, susceptible to sin. Maybe you've heard of, it's a stereotype, I know, you gotta be careful right here, but maybe you've heard of a dumb blonde. Maybe you've heard of like a jock. And the idea right there is that someone who's really gullible, you know, it's easy to like lead them astray. It's easy to trick them. And so here's what uh, the psalmist is getting right here. Without God's word, you're like a gullible person who doesn't know how the world actually works. You're never gonna be able to make sense of your finances. You're you're never gonna make sense of your relationships. You're never gonna make sense of your parenting. You're never gonna make sense of uh, sexuality, of your career. All these things are really important. But here's the hope that we're, that we're given in verse 7 is that God's word works. And if you go to and live by God's word, what you do will work and it will make you very wise. We need more wisdom, don't we? Verse 8, the precepts, that's the teachings of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So here's what we're doing around the Woods House is we're getting our home ready to become a family of four. It's an adventure every week. And what we did this past weekend is we started hanging up some curtains. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that we'll do when we're hanging up the curtains is we'll get out what's called a level. And that level is to make sure that we get it straight, that we get it right. And so that we're not hanging something that's going to be all crooked or out of alignment. And here's what's so, um, here's what's so humbling about the level. Um, well, number one, you put it up there, you get it right, and what do you do? You rejoice. You celebrate. It's like, boom, look at what we did. It's like, you didn't do that, bro. It's like the level did that. You don't even have enough vision to be able to determine a straight line. It's like, how, how humbling is this? And here, here's why. is because I can't discern a perfectly straight line without help. Maybe you could do it once or twice, but here's the question I want to ask you. What part of your life is crooked? What part of your life are you wrestling with what's right and what's wrong? And here's what the psalmist is proposing, and here's what uh, the message today is proclaiming. It's probably the area where you're resenting or resisting God's word as the level that you lay on your life, and it shows you the straight way forward. Verse 8 continued, the commandment of the Lord is what? It's pure. Okay, so pure. Think about something that's just not corrupted. Um, think about a new car. Man, you get in that new car, it smells good. You get a new pair of shoes, man, you feel like a, a million bucks. <laughs> you, you go in a new house and you're just like, I mean, I can tell that this is new. That's the idea right here. Well, it's, it says that that's the way the word is to us when we come to it regularly. It's living, it's active, and it's pure. And what does it do? It, in, it is enlightening. That means it lights up the eyes. So all of... God's word is pointing to all of God's son. And if you want to see what the word looks like when it's actually living and breathing, you just turn to the life of Jesus Christ. And so in John chapter 9, this idea of like enlightening the eyes 
is put in living color. Because in John chapter 9, Jesus, he's with his disciples, and, and he goes outside of the temple, and he sees this man who was blind from birth. And he goes up to this man who can do nothing for him. That's important, by the way. This is the, the design pattern of the gospel, and the way it works is we don't first pursue God. He first pursues us in our helplessness and our hopelessness. It's very important. And so he comes to him, and he begins to engage with him and his blindness. And here's what he says in John 9, 7. Jesus speaks his word. He tells him what to do. And so what is happening every time the, the, the mouth of Jesus is opened and speaking, it's the same thing that happened back in Genesis when God said, let there be light and let there be life. So when Jesus speaks to this man who's blind in darkness, can't see from birth, he's saying, let there be light. But here's the deal. You got to listen to him. You got to do what he says, right? So here's what he says. He says, go wash in the pool. And so the man, he went and washed and he came back seeing. I wonder if the reason why we have such a hard time seeing life, seeing reality is because we don't take the first step that God commanded us to do so that we could see to begin with. You know, we look at this story and we're just like, oh man, that miracle, that was so awesome. Jesus restored his sight. That's not even the greatest miracle that took place right here because the man, he starts, he goes out and he starts seeing and he comes back to Jesus and Jesus says, I've given you your eyesight, but have you received your soul sight? That's the greatest miracle because this man, he comes back and it, it come to find out. Jesus reveals who he is, the rescuer and king of all creation, not just the, the, the temporary restorer of sight. And so this man says, he, it says that he worshiped him and he believed. And so you can have eyesight but not have soul sight. You can't have soul sight uh, and, and not see who Jesus really is, see reality for what it really is. That was what Helen Keller had. And so soul sight is, is it's, it's faith, basically. Faith is, is, is the eyesight of the soul. I see my sin. I see where I'm offending other people. I see where I'm getting it wrong. I see where my life is crooked. I, I see repentance as refreshment. I see God's word as life to me. And this is the, the question that's in front of us right here is, are you uh, responding to that word that Jesus is speaking into your life to give you the soul sight so that you can move forward clearly. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. So basically what's, what's happening right here is uh, the motivation is fear. And you're just like, well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. Well, think about it in the parent-child relationship. It's always a great reference point. Your kids should fear you on some level in a healthy way. To fear means to take the warnings that are, come from wisdom very seriously. That's what fear means. And so if you tell your kid, hey, you know, don't, don't, don't bring that, that girl or that guy home. She's, she's bad news. If you date that person, that's going to drive you in the ditch. Or if they go to touch the hot stove or they go to run in the road and you say, don't do that, that's going to hurt you. What is that? And they listen to you? That's, that's fear. You know, God's doing that with us all the time. And what he says is if you fear the Lord, you will endure forever because you won't be destroyed by your own stupidity. Amen? Yeah, first nine, we'll keep going, doing good. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. I love that word all together. Do you feel like your life is coming together? Or do you feel like it's falling apart? 
what the word does when it works in your heart is it brings your life together. You ever had to go to the mechanic and get your car fixed because you got like a bad part that's over here, like sounding all like ratchety, and uh, you, know, you sound like the Beverly Hillbillies coming into town if you don't get that thing fixed, man? Well, what, you, what you're doing is think about all the important areas of your, of your life, like all the parts on a car. And here's, here's what this means. So think about your sexuality. Think about your hobbies. Think about your entertainment. Think about your relationships. Think about your, your finances. All these important things are like, how do I bring this together, man? It's so hard. Life is so hard. Well, what the psalmist is saying is that the way you bring it together is by putting your life under the word of God. Because then if, you, if your life is a car, all those parts are going to come together and you're just going to hum down the road. It's going to sound really, really good. But if not, it's, it's going to go really, really bad. Verse 10. God's word is more to be desired, are they, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Here's what's being said. God's word is better than money and honey. The two things that we spend our lives frantically trying to get more of. Money is about power. Honey is about pleasure. God's word is both bigger and better. The invitation, you don't have to believe this. You don't have to do this. But here's what I can tell you. You know, God brought me to my knees to bring me to my feet at the age of 19 in my dorm room. And, and he, he saved me from my sin and he put me on a trajectory of purpose and joy. It started with the word of God. I, here, I knew I was a Christian when I wanted God. I knew God had made me new when I was going to new desires and it tasted, it was better than gold. It was, it was, it was sweeter than honey. And you're, you're sitting here, you're just like, that's great and all, but uh, maybe your inner lawyer is protesting. You've got some questions, you've got some objections. I, hey, that's fine. No shame, no shade. I want to interact with that. I want to give you something helpful today. So three objections I want to interact with. Number one, why would you not read God's word? I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Well, and truthfully, we do. We live among the most biblically illiterate generation in American history. But here's the reality it's not because the Bible is that hard to understand. Often that's an excuse that people use to not read it or not go to it or not prioritize it. But most of the Bible is two plus two equals four. Most of the Bible is basic life math. Yeah, there's some, there's some weird things in there that it's helpful for you to go to someone and that's why you need a disciple maker in your life, investing in you, involved in your life who you can ask those questions. But most of the Bible is actually pretty simple. And here's what I want to do. I want to give you, and, and by the way, when you leave here after this sermon, you have no excuse for not understanding the Bible. I'm going to do this to you today. You have no excuse, and here's why. Because I'm going to give you the best resource on the planet to change your inability to understand the Bible. And there's going to be a website that comes up on the screen, and it's this, bibleproject.com. You're welcome. There's also a free app that you can download. And this is like the Netflix of biblical literacy. Let me tell you guys something. So um, going through seminary, that really cultivated my knowledge of the scriptures. You know, my ability to think like organizationally and theologically uh, to help lead a church into the future. But here's what I can tell you. These, these Bible Project guys, they're a nonprofit animation studio based in Oregon who make the Bible accessible to everyone everywhere. These are the guys that really helped me love the Bible. There's not a week that goes by I'm not watching some video that they've made and it's visual, it's engaging, and it's, here's the thing, it's all free. So there you go. No more reason for not understanding the Bible. 
Uh, next is I don't have time. I don't have time. Okay, so let's, let's go here. The a- average American spends 705 hours a year on social media. Yikes. 2,700 hours a year watching TV. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to touch your phone on average 2,617 times today. Let's, let's call it what it is. The reason why we don't go to God's word is not because we don't have time. That's usually a cover for saying I'm just not interested. And if you're not interested, hey, that's okay. That's, that's what environments like this are intended to do is to whet your appetite so that you will be interested leaving here. But I can prove it's not because you don't have time with this example. If I said there was a $100 bill waiting on you, every day you read one chapter of the Bible, would that free up some time? There's not a person in the room who would say, no, I can't make time. Did it, did it give you more time? No, it just appealed to what motivates you. And while I've offended you, I'm going to go ahead and keep going. I don't know where to start. Here's another one. So uh, really simple. You need to do three things. I'll start with this one. Receive it weekly. You need to be sitting in a seat like this. If you're in town, if you're online, that's why we do this. But you need to be under the word of God being preached in the power of the Holy Spirit through conviction that God's word brings light in life. You need to be in an environment like this to hear the Bible preached, explained, applied clearly and practically for everyday living. Because here's what happens. There's something powerful that happens in the event of preaching. You look around the room and that's okay sometimes. You see people with their Bibles opened and you're sitting here just like, God, what do you want to say to me today? What do you want to confront in my life? And that's what, that's what biblical, gospel-centered, spirit-filled preaching does every time, is it will comfort you where you are troubled. It will convict you where you're driving off the ditch. And it will create new desires in your life that you didn't have before you heard it. You need this, so you need to receive it weekly. Every one of us, we need, we need somebody who's going to kind of lovingly raise their voice at us in grace and truth from time to time. And so like, we need somebody who's just going to love us enough to tell us the truth. Because if we're being honest, we're not really good at telling ourselves the truth, are we? There's some things that can come up in an environment like this that will help with that. Uh, additionally, we need to read it daily. Read it daily. Uh, and I, I, you need to know where, you need to know when, and you need to know what. Okay, so where are you going to read the Bible? Um, I, I, like to, I like it to be a place that's like really attractive, uh, really quiet. I, I get coffee, I get candle, a candle, and I, I like it quiet. And so maybe it's like early in the morning or in the evening. Um, but have a place. Have a place, but then have a, have a when. Like, uh, when am I going to read the Bible? It's like, maybe you got young kids and you're just like, oh, no, 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 you don't understand, dude. Um, I, got, I got young kids. I don't have time for that. Okay, all right. Have you thought about just bringing your kids into your Bible time and reading the Bible with them? Or I know there are multiple families in our church and it shows in the way that they live their life. They wake up before their kids so that they can hear from the word of God. And, or they read the Bible after the kids go down because they view this as, the light that brings life. So you need to have the where, you need to have the when, and you need to have the what. Guys, here's the deal. Um, Again, I'm taking excuses off the table today. Sorry to be that guy, but uh, you should have received a reading plan (laughs) on your way in. And what this is, is, you know, if you spend five minutes a day, you can do this. And you're just like, well, what am I looking for? Well, we put a personal tour guide on the back of this that will help you know how you can spend time with God and hear meaningfully from 
him. And, you know, quite frankly, if you don't like the Bible reading plan that we put together, that's fine. Our feelings are not hurt. You can get free ones from Bible Project or that phone that you're touching 2,600 times a day. There's a lot of reading plans on this thing called version that you can go right there. Amen. So there's a, a couple of ways that you can read it daily. Next, you need to reflect on it regularly. Reflect on it regularly, man. Okay, so how do you do this? By memorizing and by discussing. Memorizing. It is better to have the word of God in your heart than in your hand. Anybody can hold God's word in their hand. Not just anybody is going to do the hard but worthy work to get it in their heart. What did the psalmist say? He said, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see, here in the moment of temptation, it's not going to be like, oh, let me go find a verse, let me go find a verse. It's like, bro, you're on the hot seat. Sis, you're on the hot seat. It's like if you don't have any ammunition there to fire back at the enemy, you're a sitting duck, and you're, it's like you're showing up to a gunfight with no bullets. You've got to get the Word of God right here. What's it like when you memorize God's Word? I remember when I was a college pastor, um, I got a couple of our college students together and a couple of guys, and we were just like, guys, here's the deal. We're going to memorize a chapter of the Bible. You know, we're not going to like Psalm 23:1 over here. Like, we're going to memorize like Romans 8. <laughs> we're going to memorize Psalms. And these guys, like we ended up like memorizing chapters of the Bible together and they out-memorized me, man. And, and it shows up, those guys, they have healthy marriages today. They're, they're leading mission, like churches and mission trips today. And it's no surprise because they got the word of God right here, man. It's just like, I, and you're like, I can't do that. That's, that's fine and fair. But would you just consider starting somewhere? Psalm 23. Memorize Psalm 23. You probably got half of it memorized already. Just think about it. Um, go to Psalm 63 or Psalm 46. There's some of the best Psalms in, in the whole book, and they're really not that hard if you just put it in front of you and, and go back to it regularly. Next is discussing it. You need to discuss it. So what is this about? Well, uh, when you discuss the Bible, is you are taking it in in community. And so our community groups, we, we gather in homes throughout the week. We do this every single week. And what's that about? That is about discussing the Word of God. And here's what memorizing and discussing do. Um, reading the Bible is like on your social media feed, just scrolling. And you keep going, you keep going, you never stop. Memorizing the Bible, discussing the Bible is like it grabs your attention and you stop and you actually focus on it. And it actually affects you. Like you can, you can just like blow right past reading the Bible and not take anything away from it. You memorize the Bible, you discuss the Bible, it's gonna make a difference in your life. Lastly, God's word is not just amazing. It's not just a map. It is also a mirror. It exposes us. So here's what I'm just going to, I hope this happens. Every morning you wake up and you go to a mirror. <laughs> I hope you do this. Okay, this is very good life practice right here. And you, you see, you, know, you got that bed head, maybe that alfalfa is like up here or whatever. Um, and you do something about that, right? You got those puffy eyes and it's like, dude, Danger, danger, Will Rogers. Don't go outside without doing something about that because you might lose some friends and some credibility with the neighbors. You don't want to be that person who's always out front with your jammies, okay? You know, I know we have to do that sometimes. You know, we do. But uh, <laughs> you got to be careful there, man. It's like um, we had, this was, this, was, this was fun. We did staff picture day this last week. Let me tell you about staff picture day. That's the best our staff has ever looked. I mean, the, I'm like, how do we do this, man? I mean, what happened? It's like everybody spent more time in front of the mirror. I guarantee it. And that's what David's talking about in verses 11 through 14. Moreover, by them, God's word 
is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. In other words, you won't regret it. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? In other words, I can't know myself by myself. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Those are sins I commit in ignorance that I'm still guilty of and that still hurt people. It's called self-awareness. You do something about, about your sin and your, your stuff. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. These are intentional sins. I know this is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Here's the point of view that David's given us. Uh, living your life without looking into the word is like leaving your house without looking in the mirror. It will never go well for you. And so what do we know at this point? Well, we, hey, God's word is amazing. It shows us the wonder of creation. God's word is a map. It shows us the right direction. And God's word is a mirror. It shows us who we truly are, but that's not enough. And here's why. Take a look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David viewed the Lord as his own personal redeemer. What is a redeemer? A redeemer is someone who pays the cost to free and to forgive someone who's guilty. And so if you think about it, a map doesn't have the power to change your heart. A mirror doesn't have the power to change your heart. And that's why God's word is not just a map, it's not just a mirror, but God's word became a man. God was not merely sent to us on pages to read, but in a person who would redeem. And who is this redeemer? Well, King David uses the most personal name of God at the time. It was Yahweh. Same God for us, but we know him as Jesus. And he came in the form of man to perfectly fulfill the word of God. He did it in our place. He took our place. He secured the victory we could never win. And he's still rolling stones away today if we will be still before him. Jesus came into the world as our perfect redeemer. And that's why all of God's word is pointing all of us to all of Jesus. In Colossians 1.14, we read that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In Galatians 3.13, we read that Christ became a curse for us on the cross to redeem us from the curse of sin. And so when you think about Jesus as, our, as your perfect redeemer, let me just tell you a quick story. Then I want to I pray over you. I want to pray for progress today. Um, you may have heard of the, the famous story by Francine Rivers called Redeeming Love. Uh, it's a very moving story. It's a vivid retelling of what actually happens in God's pursuit of us. But basically, I'll, I'll summarize it for you. Uh, there's this uh, young farmer named Michael who uh, is going to God. It's during the California gold rush in the 1800s. He's, he's going to God and he says, God, would you give me a wife? He's really godly. He loves the Lord. And next thing he knows, he's, he's out in the public square and um, there's, this, there's this beautiful woman that catches his eye and her name is Sarah. And, he, and, and in that moment, God says to his heart, that's who I want you to marry. And he tells his friend and his friend's like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. She's a prostitute. <laughs> She's not who you think she is. And he says, nope, that's it. I, that's the woman. She's the one. And so what he does is he goes to her brothel. It's this place called the palace. She bypasses all the pimps and all the management. 
pays the fee to go into her quarters where men will go to sleep with her. But he doesn't sleep with her. He speaks with her. And she's blown away. He doesn't just speak with her. He says, will you marry me? I can offer you a better life and a more unconditional love and I can get you out of this place. Will you marry me? And she just laughs it off, pushes him away. And he spends everything that he's got going back night after night, time after time, conversation after conversation. She keeps pushing him away. And then it just so happens that one of her managers slash customers ends up coming in and, and beating, her name was Sarah, beating Sarah within an inch of her life. And Michael shows up again, this young farmer who wants to marry her. He shows up and barely conscious, he asks her, as she's barely conscious, he says, Sarah, will you marry me? And she says, sure. <laughs> and so, but one of the duchesses in, in the, the palace comes and says, you're not taking her out of here? She has a debt and you got to pay it or she's not going anywhere. And he like empties his savings and pays her debt and carries her back to his farm and nurses her to health, treats her well, treats her wounds, treats her with dignity, not as she deserves. And all the while, his friends are like, do you know who that is? He's like, yes, and I only have eyes for her. And so the rest of the movie is this haunting cycle of Sarah going back to her old ways, breaking Michael's heart, resisting his offer of unconditional love. And he, he never gives up. He never stops going after Sarah. And eventually, the, mo the movie, there's a, there's a movie, there's a book, you can read or watch it. Um, but at the end of the movie, after countless pursuits and after countless advances with unconditional love, she comes home on her own. She comes home on her own to the one who loved her the most and the one who loved her first. And here's what I want to tell you. What is God's word? God's word is the love letter that reveals to you and I that we are the prostitute and God is the worthy bridegroom who comes in and never gives up on us. And so what God's word is doing, and this is why we want to hear it, is it's an invitation for us to be still in the presence of the one who loves us first, who loves us most, and will love us best.